Last week I indicated that we would look at chapter 36 tonight, but I want to begin by summarizing chapters 34 and 35, because as you'll see from the outline, there is a relationship uh, between chapters 34 through 38. Jeremiah chapter 34 is set in the reign of King Zedekiah after his treacherous rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar brought the armies of Babylon down upon Jerusalem for the third and final time. At some point during that siege, Zedekiah makes a covenant a covenant to set all the slaves in Jerusalem free. Having liberated them, he then reneges on his covenant oath and re-enslaves those he had previously set free. We have in chapter 34, rather, a chapter which displays the perfidy and perjury of the king of Judah. Zedekiah is not only unfaithful to his oath of loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar, perfidious treachery, he is a deceitful liar in his covenant oath to the slaves he had emancipated in Jerusalem. Mendacious perjury. The consequences of this perfidious rebellion and specious prevarication are provided by the word of the Lord to his prophet Jeremiah. Judah and Jerusalem will be liberated. They will be liberated to the sword, to pestilence, to famine, and to death's destruction. Yes, you treacherous king and your kingdom, you'll have liberation. The inevitable consequences of perfidy and perjury in rulers, the inevitable consequence is death and destruction and the dishonor that goes with deceit and lying and perfidious treachery. Chapter 35 is set during the reign of King Jehoiakim and provides the intriguing tale of the Rechabites. The Rechabite clan has ancient roots in the family of the Kenites, of whom Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was a member. Jethro, you may recall, was a nomadic tent dweller, a herder of flocks, sheep and goats. Jonadav, who is mentioned in this 35th chapter, another Rechabite ancestor, codified the lifestyle of the clan. Neither agriculture nor viticulture, but nomadic herders, sojourning continually in tents. Jonadav is also mentioned in 2 Kings 10 as a vigorous opponent of idolatry, particularly the worship of Baal in the days of Jehu, king of the northern kingdom of Israel. 
Here in Jeremiah 35, the loyalty and the fidelity of the Rechabites to their forefathers is underscored when they take refuge in Jerusalem but refuse to drink wine or abandon their nomadic lifestyle. The Rechabites become here the very antithesis of the Judeans. They listen obediently and faithfully to the commands of their forefathers, while the children of Judah refuse to listen to the commandments of God given by their forefathers and the prophets. Sojourning Gentiles, these Rechabites, there's that Gentile interface with the Jews once again in the prophet Jeremiah. Sojourning Gentiles, <clears throat> taking refuge in the city of God, faithfully abiding by the covenant of their forefathers. Now it is this drama of Gentile sojourn amongst the people of God, a sojourn of loyalty and fidelity to the commands of their forefathers, it is this drama which brings God's promise in the last verse of this 35th chapter, verse 19, that Jonadab, son of Rechav, will not lack a man to stand before the Lord always. All right, now, the macro structure of this unit has a chiastic pattern. When we look at the chapters in relationship to the reign of the king in which they are recorded, we've already mentioned that chapter 34 occurs during the reign of do you remember? Zedekiah. And chapter 35, during the reign of Jehoiakim. <clears throat> right, if you'll notice chapter 36, which is our object this evening, this occurs during the reign of anyone? Jehoiakim again. <clears throat> and finally, if you turn over to chapter 37, 37 and 38 together, which are, in fact, bookend uh, chapters. They contain the same continuing narrative, so I've placed them together. Chapter 37 and 38 take place during the reign of anyone? Zedekiah again. You'll notice the little chiastic pattern there. A pattern which is sandwiching the parallel parallel loyalties over against the treacheries of the outer limits of the chiasm. <clears throat> I'm not pressing the thematic pattern uh, hard, but you'll notice that there is a kind of pattern here or method to the arrangement of these chapters, and it's keyed into this crisis of loyalty or treachery as we approach the end of the history of the southern kingdom because the 39th chapter of Jeremiah will be a description of the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, with respect to the structure of chapter 36, 
Let's begin with the inclusio and let's see if you can find it. Uh, you know that I'm always looking for these patterns and so let's see if you can pick it up, which means that you know how to look for an inclusio and therefore you're going to know where to turn in order to discover it, if it's there. So I'll give you a minute to ponder that. And what have you come up with? I saw your head nod there a moment. Art? Scroll. Okay, scroll is certainly one uh, word that we find in what verse? And what other verse? 32. Verse, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Verse 32. Verse 32, very good. Anything else you see in verse 2 and verse 32 besides the word scroll? It's the verb. Take a scroll, verse 2. He took a scroll, verse 32. It's the same Hebrew word, same Hebrew verb. And so we have an inclusio which brackets the chapter, verses 2 to 32. It's a very good illustration of a literary or narrative inclusio because we have an envelope or an enclosure around what? Around Jeremiah's scroll. So the outer limits of the frame are pushing us down into the inner narrative or the inner story of Jeremiah's scroll. The chapter has been framed intentionally to include the story of the scroll in between verses 2 and 32. Well, how does the story unfold? It unfolds in two acts, Act 1 and Act 2. And Act 1 has three scenes. So let's begin with Act 1, Scene 1. And that includes verses 2 to 14, where, if you'll notice in verse 14, what words do you find? Take a scroll. Take a scroll, the verb and the noun. Here, quite interestingly, we have a chiastic reversal. In the Hebrew text, not in your English translation, the word scroll is first. The verb take is second. I'm not going to press the chiasm there because it's not consistent in the rest of the chapter. However, I point out for the sake of interest that it is there in the original Hebrew. All right, so Act 1, Scene 1, verses 2 to 14, which is also framed by the words take scroll. What do we have in Act 1, Scene 1? We have the first scroll and the first dictation of the first scroll, and the first reading of the first scroll dictated. Act 1, Scene 1 are a number of firsts with respect to Jeremiah's initial scroll. Now, in verse 14, you'll notice that the word scroll and the verb take occur twice in that verse. Then in verse 21, what words do we have? Four 
took a scroll again, all right? So there's our next scene. So Act 1, Scene 2, verses 14 to 21. In this scene, we're still dealing with the first scroll, but now we are dealing with the second reading of that scroll. And in Scene 2 of Act 1, the first official reaction to the reading of the scroll. All right, Act 1, Scene 2, verses 14 to 21, the first scroll in its second reading and the first official reaction to that reading of the first scroll. All right, now what words do you notice in verse 28? Take a scroll again, all right? So here we have Act 1, Scene 3, verses 21 to 28, where once again we are dealing with the first scroll. Only this time it is the third reading of that first scroll. And here in Act 1, Scene 3, the first royal reaction, not the first reaction, but the first royal reaction to the third reading of the first scroll. And what is the royal reaction? Okay, what's the royal reaction? Um, Loretta, what's the royal reaction? He burns it. He destroys it. So the destruction of the scroll. Now keep that in mind. Keep that in the back of your mind. He destroys the scroll. Now finally, as we've already pointed out, verse 32 has... The verb took and scroll, which also lines up with verse 28. So we are in act two of this drama between verses 28 and 32. Why are we in act two? Can you answer the question? What object do we have in act two? The second scroll, don't we? Okay, second act, second scroll, okay? The second scroll in Act 2, verses 28 to 32, and the second dictation to the scroll. Now, in this case, the chapter ends with the scroll unread, but recorded. And the divine reaction... Now, God's reaction, the divine reaction of certain destruction to Judah and Jerusalem. As if God were saying, destroy my scroll, I destroy your city. Burn my word and your city's going to burn. It is certainly consistent with the imagery of God's description of the calamity that he is going to bring upon the city as a result. All right, do you have any questions about that basic breakdown? We have a two-act drama here. It is the drama of the story of Jeremiah's scroll. Act 1 deals with its preparation, recording, and reading, and its destruction Act 2 deals with a second scroll, its dictation and its recording, and God's promise to destroy the nation and the city. Now, the chief character, Scott? Act 
2 then ends in verse 32. Is that like a telescope shorter act for some reason? I don't, I'm not going to make anything out of that. I think you can say it's, it's, it ends open-ended. And under that, it ends open to the future, which is the certain destruction. Even as you destroyed the scroll, this city is going to be destroyed. This palace is going to be destroyed. All right, now, the uh, other major character in this chapter is Barak, or Barak. It's pronounced a number of different ways in Hebrew. And you have... uh, Pictures of the bulli of Barak, which are discovered in Jerusalem. Uh, a couple of them, as a matter of fact, there are more than uh, one, there are more than uh, one or two that are pictured here uh, from 1975 on. In fact, in 2008, there was another one discovered. So uh, you see here the uh, bulli of uh, Barak, Barak uh, of. Uh, um, son of Neriah, Neriah the scribe, and you have the Hebrew text there on the scroll in both of, or on the seals on uh, both of them, and there is no reason to doubt that this is not the Baruch of Jeremiah 36 and other places in the book. In other words, this is his name and his patrimony, son of Neriah, his father, and his function, scribe. Fits perfectly. And there it is. Yes, go ahead, Ben. What is a bull eye? What is a bull eye? <clears throat> What's a bull eye? Anyone? Well, it says it's a right. seal. Yes, it's a seal. <clears throat> what kind of a seal? Very good, Loretta. It's a document seal, or it's a seal for any kind of writing. It could be a document. <clears throat> okay, we know that Baruch has been associated with a document. What document has it been associated with already? Not the scroll, a document. I'm not denying that the scroll is a document, but when when we usually think of a seal on a document, we think of a legal document, don't we? Yes, the title deed of what? Of the field in Anathoth that in chapter 32, Jeremiah was told to purchase. Okay, so in that case, he's a recorder of deeds. And so we know what a scroll would be. You've you've probably seen those. Uh, In in this case, you would use a wax and then you would press the bullet into the warm wax and it would leave his name on it as the scribe who was responsible for producing the document or sealing the document or witnessing the document, as the case may be. <clears throat> These are very small, okay, even as uh, wax seals are uh, still relatively small, <clears throat> but they're made out of clay, and that's one of the reasons they've survived. And they've been dug up as a result of the excavation of parts of Jerusalem, and so here's a case of one uh, which is directly, can be directly identified with a character in the biblical text. <clears throat> no, neither conservative nor liberal doubt that these bullae come from the man who is mentioned in this passage. No argument. It's nice when there are no arguments, but the conservative or the liberals trying to make it out to be something other than what's right there in front of their face. Any other questions about that? <clears throat> 
All right, so you, you could see a confirmation of the historicity of the name and the function, and his father doesn't confirm the historicity of the text per se, but it certainly lends credibility to the reliability to the reliability of the transmission of the information that is here in the scriptures for us. <clears throat> All right, now back to the first verse of chapter thirty-six. And the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Marge, what would the fourth year of Jehoiakim be? Can you give me a date? No, no she can't give me a date. Okay, Loretta, your, tra- your turn, your chance. 605. Very good. 605 B.C. is the fourth year of Jehoiakim, which is also the first year of whom? Loretta, can you do that one? Fourth year of Jehoiakim is the first year of whom? Okay, Nebuchadnezzar. It's the first year of his reign as emperor, okay, 605. It's also the year that he does what? He takes the young men to, into exile. And the most famous one? Daniel. Daniel, very good. All right, you're doing well. Now, verse 2, this scroll, we've read this word over and over again. It's megiloth in the Hebrew. Okay, uh, what does it mean? Kind of, What kind of material is a megiloth made out of. What is a scroll? Loretta? Papyrus. Yes, papyrus. And what is papyrus, Loretta? Good. Very good for you. This is right up your alley, although I don't think you grow any of it. Sheets pasted together. Yes. Sheets of what? How do they make it? It comes from a plant. Very good. It's a reed. A reed. Yes, very good. And so what do they do? Well, they pound it into a sheet. No, they don't pound it. They take the reed. They split the reed. They take the pith out of the reed. And they flatten it out on on a platform and let it dry. Now, they will lay successive layers or successive pieces of the pith alongside or over top so that they will build up uh, a, a papyrus type. I can't say paper. It's not really paper. But when it dries, it dries substantially hard enough and <clears throat> has enough longevity that uh, you can write on it, uh, <clears throat> draw on it, do artwork on it, uh, whatever you'd like to do. Mostly it was used for writing. <clears throat> All right. Papyrus was found in those jars in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls, some of them were papyrus scrolls. They, they lasted then over 2,000 years. All right, so it's possible that Jeremiah's scroll was papyrus. It's also possible that it's something else. What other material would have been used in the ancient world to write on besides papyrus? Pardon? Would it be skin the skin of an animal, and what would they call that? Vellum. You could call it vellum. What other word? Parchment. Parchment, yes. Parchment or vellum. All right, now, why is this scroll probably not parchment? In other words, I think we can say for certain that Jeremiah's scroll is papyrus. It's not parchment. And there's a reason we can say that 
from something in this story itself? Very good. It was burned in the fire. And if you burn parchment in the fire in an enclosed space, what are you going to get? You're going to get a stench you can't stand. <laughs> right? All right. All right. As anyone knows that's burned dried animal skin uh, <laughs> or even burned, you know, animals in general uh, in order to get rid of, of, the, of the waste, uh, <clears throat> the point is there's a tremendous odor there. So I don't think Jehoiakim would have sliced this thing if it had been parchment or vellum and put it into his brazier in order to burn inside his palace. It just it, it would have been unbearable. <clears throat> All right, so I, uh, the, the tip of the hat here goes to papyrus for the material out of which this scroll was composed. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> in that second verse, you'll notice that the Lord says, I want you to write on the scroll everything that I have spoken to you since the first day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah even to this day. When did God begin to speak to Jeremiah in the days of Josiah? Now you have the cross-reference there. So let's turn over to chapter 25, verse 3. And Lisa, when you find verse 3 of chapter 25, I'm going to ask you to read it for us. Jeremiah 25, verse 3. Very good. Thank you very much. All right. Now, notice what we gather from that verse. From the 13th year of Josiah, even to this day, 23 years. All right. Now, what year is this 23 years after the 13th year of Josiah? Notice verse 1 in chapter 25. It's the fourth year of Jehoiakim. And what year is that, Marge? It's 605. All right. So, in fact, we have the same year in chapter 36 as we have here in chapter 25. But in chapter 25, where God is saying, I want you to write everything down since when I first started revealing my word to you in the 13th year of Josiah, which has been going on, my revelation to you from that 13th year of Josiah, been going on for 23 years. Okay. So, what's the 13th year of Josiah? All right, he took... Go ahead, Ben. Uh, No. I'm sorry, did I say 20? I meant the 13th year. I'm sorry. You would be right, 604 or 605 if we said 23rd year. So, what would be the 13th year? No. 627 is about the time when the 13th year occurs. So he begins his reign in 640. So the 13th year would be 627, 626. And we subtract 23 from that, we're down to about 605, 604, which is exactly where we are in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. All right, now keep in mind what's going on here. God is saying to Jeremiah in 
605, uh, I'm, I'm going to have you write down everything I've been telling you for the last 23 years. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I can remember everything I had said 23 years ago. Even my last sermon 23 years ago, I'm not sure I could remember that either. So here is Jeremiah now. He's going to have to have total recall for the word of the Lord for 23 years running. And, of course, the only way that's going to happen is by divine inspiration. The Holy Spirit is going to bring it back to his mind. I'm not suggesting that Jeremiah may not have had some kind of diaries or records alongside of this. But nonetheless, here, when we come to the codification of it, when we come to the inscripturation of it, when we come to the recording of it, God says, now we're going to put it down on paper. And he's going to bring it back to his mind. He's going to superintend that recording of it by the hand of And so here we have a very interesting reflection of some of the steps in the process of recording the word of God. Now, any questions about that? Now, in verse five, he says he's been restricted or shut up, depending upon your version. I cannot go to the house of the Lord. You know, he can't go into the temple because he's restricted or shut away from it for some reason. Do not confuse this restriction or being shut out uh, with his confinement in the house of the palace guard, which we noticed last week, chapter 32, verse 2 and 33, verse 1. And the reason is, if you keep your finger here in 36 and turn back to chapter 32, verse 1, Why do I know it is not the same confinement? Verse 1 of chapter 32. Which is what year? Um, Oh, and it's also the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. uh, Take the easier one. 587? It is 587, his 10th year, correct. His first year was 597 when he took over for Jeconiah. All right. So it can't be the same event, all right? It can't be the same being shut away or confined because in chapter 36, what date do we have? March? 605. All right. So it's almost 20 years later in chapter 32. All right, so whatever restriction is upon him, it is not him being confined to the house of the palace guard. That is not what's in view here in chapter 36. Well, then what is in view? Why wasn't he allowed to go into the house of the Lord? We don't know. There is nothing here to answer that question. So it's pure guesswork on my part to to make a a statement about it because the Hebrew word doesn't help us. And there's nothing else in the chapter or in the later career of Jeremiah that sheds any light on this. For some reason, he was barred from the temple. All right, now verse 6. Jeremiah is saying, 
to Barak, I want you to read from the scroll which you have written at my dictation. At my dictation. All right now, is our view of divine inspiration a dictation view? Now, Scott's shaking his head, and I'll, I'll, I'll have my colleague comment on that. Go ahead, Scott. You shake your head. Why? Because the work that the Spirit does in inspiring the prophets and apostles doesn't necessarily mean him actually dictating it to them in a verbal sense, necessarily. They, they may be inspired by the Spirit working through their mind and hearts and affections and their relationship to the church to speak the words that they do. So dictation has a somewhat negative connotation, right? In other words, in the excuse me, in the old days when you had a secretary who took dictation, they don't do it anymore because they don't need to. You, you speak into computers and it records it and it spits it back out in printed form, isn't it? Even I mean, you don't put it in Word doc for you. It's by talking it onto the screen. Anyway. Uh, but back in the days when you had a, a stenographer, a secretary that had one of those pads and did shorthand and so on and so forth. <clears throat> Any of you women that know shorthand, you know, <clears throat> that's antique stuff. If you've got shorthand books, you preserve them for museums. <clears throat> All right. Um, <clears throat> in that event of dictation, the personality of the secretary was completely irrelevant to the dictation, correct? All that was important was that she or he, as the case may be, record it. Just put it down as you said it. You bypassed the whole personal assessment, personal involvement, personal character of the secretary. That's the danger in the dictation view of divine inspiration. As Scott was saying, it bypasses the uh, memory, the personality, the creativity, the style of the individual biblical writer, all of which means that the Holy Spirit doesn't ignore that. He uses that. Why doesn't Jeremiah write like Isaiah? Because his personality is different. His style is different. Why doesn't Matthew write like John? Well, because his style is different. Personality is different. It doesn't mean we've got contradictory styles. It doesn't mean that they disagree with one another. It simply means that God, out of this multi, uh, <clears throat> multifaceted character of human personality and creativity and ingenuity, etc., he uses all of that to his glory and inspires his word through it by means of it. <clears throat> Now, back to this word dictation here. Literally, the Hebrew here in verse 6 means from the mouth. Now, that makes Barak simply an amanuensis. It makes him a scribe, which, of course, is what his function is. He's a recorder. The inspiration is coming not from the recording of it, but from the mouth of the speaker. And the mouth of the speaker and the way he speaks it and the style in which he speaks it is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 tell us. Namely, that Jeremiah is superintended by the Holy Spirit as he's borne along by the Spirit's inspiration or working upon him, as from his mouth comes the word of God. What 
Barak records is therefore the ipsissima verba, the very words of God. But those very words of God are coming through the personality and the mouth and the style and the, per- and the background and the exposure of the prophet Jeremiah, which, as you know, by this time is quite profound. There's a great literary skill in this prophet as well as a great poetic skill. And therefore, God har- harnesses all of that to, uh, to, to speak his word and to preserve the word which he speaks through the mouth of his prophet. So dictation here should not be uh, thought to be a kind of robotic process. It is not. God is not reducing his servants who receive his inspiration and communicate it. He's not reducing them to robotic uh, mimes. No. He is using them. He's using their gifts and speaking his infallible and inerrant word through those gifts. All right, so uh, when we hold to the inspiration of the word of God, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by divine inspiration. It's breathed out by God's, breathed out of God's mouth, breathed into the mind and the heart, the personality of the writer. When we when we say that that's a dictation view, we want to be careful that we don't suggest that it's a robotic idea of the production of the scriptures. No, we don't believe that. And so we tend to avoid the word dictation and simply talk about the divine inspiration. But here the word is in the text. And so we need to understand the nuance or the significance of it. <clears throat> it is what's coming from the mouth, literally what's coming from the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah and then being recorded by uh, Baruch the scribe. Any questions about that? Does it raise any other questions about your view of inspiration? This incidentally is a very hot topic, particularly in evangelical circles, as to whether or not uh, uh, inspiration comes by dictation or it comes by the uh, use of the personality and the uh, gifts and the, up, uh, the educational background of the writers of Scripture. Obviously not a, a big controversy in your estimation. All right. Yeah, I saw Kay shrug her shoulders. It's a, also, it just, just so it's the word of God, right? But also, Jim, in fairness to your audience here, it says, as I dictated. So Jeremiah is saying that he dictated this. Yeah, the word is there, but I want you to understand the nuance of the Hebrew word, which is translated dictated here, is literally from my mouth. Right, so it's not a robotic dictation. It's from his mouth of his own creativity. In other words, his mind, his personality, his style is all involved in that. So nowhere here does it say how God communicated this to him and what method. So that seems to be irrelevant to the passage because it's not, uh, it's not referred to at all. That, that is technically true. However, it is not derivatively true because the word spurs this discussion of whether God dictates by simply bypassing the personality and simply using the mouth of the uh, organ of, of transmission uh, for his own purposes. You're saying that people here, like here, that Jeremiah says that he dictated it, then it conjures up thoughts in their mind. Well, did God dictate this to Jeremiah? Yes. Yes. 
Now, it's, 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 it's certainly true that God reveals it to Jeremiah, all right? Particularly things that Jeremiah doesn't know. So those things are revealed, okay? Are they dictated to Jeremiah? No, they're communicated to him in some way in which his own creative personality and understanding is illuminated by the Holy Spirit, and then what he records is the very word of God. That's not an issue. That's not the topic at all of the text. Uh, Okay. Technically, you're correct. I'll repeat myself. You're technically correct. But this is a large discussion in the doctrine of the scriptures. Okay? So I'm simply alerting you to something that is out there as a part of current evangelical discussion. In fact, it's being eroded in current evangelical discussion because current evangelicals are giving up the inspiration of the Bible. Yes, Cheryl. Having taken dictation... I'm old enough to have done that. And I and, and it's not. I don't see it as a robotic thing. I mean, no matter how you do it, if the person that's doing the dictation, their personality comes through. Even though maybe if I did it for an insurance company. I mean, and if you took the same letter that someone was dictating to somebody, it would be different depending on... The, the um, particular insurance person who was dictating it. But did you add anything to the content when you were recording what was dictated? Uh, n- well, not really. No. See, that, that, see that's, that's where the robotic comes in. Okay? So the dictation reduces the recorder to a position of just simply receiving something and not having their, uh, their own personality involved in it. So now we're moving it a step backwards to the one who's receiving the revelation in the first place, the information, namely Jeremiah. Okay, is this coming at dictation not only to Baruch, but is it coming in dictation to him so that he's being reduced to an uninvolved personality? No, that is not true. That's not the implication of the text. All right, well, there's uh, there's enough good discussion on that point. uh, You now need some oxygen. If not some coffee or something else. So, once again, as Duke Ellington would say, take five. All right, I'm going to call you back to order. I have some ground to cover. And the first ground I cover is that you get a week off next week. There are going to be other special meetings next week, so we'll not bring you out one more time. So we won't be back here next Thursday. And the week after that, we will do chapters 37 and 38 together. So we'll come back the week after Easter and do Ebed Melech. Now, verse 9 mentions the fifth year of Jehoiakim. And what year would that be? 604. Very good. Now, in that ninth verse... You notice that Jehoiakim declares a fast in Jerusalem. So, the question is why? Why in 604 BC does Jehoiakim declare a fast? The suggested answer comes from the text from the Babylonian Chronicles. The text of Nebuchadnezzar's campaigns, and so we'll read that text first year of Nebuchadnezzar, he mustered his army and marched to Hatti territory, to the city of Ashkelon, and captured it in the month of Kislev. 
Now, the first year of Nebuchadnezzar would be what year? You've already said this. Can you? 605, so we can date that. All right. Um, where is Ashkelon? Go ahead, Kerry. It's in, it, it is in the broader Palestinian. It's actually in Philistia. Okay, it's one of the Philistine cities. <clears throat> so, yes, yes, it, it's. But Ashkelon is further north than the present Gaza Strip. <clears throat> okay, yes. And what Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, does in Ashkelon here when he destroys it, he levels the city. Ashkelon was never rebuilt as Ashkelon after he destroyed it in this campaign. <clears throat> All right, now, um, he's, he's campaigning against a Philistine city in 605 and later. He marches to Hatti territory, which obviously includes Philistia. What's Hatti land? We've had this before. This is a Akkadian or Babylonian term for what region? Judah. For Judah, for Palestine, Judah, and Syria. So it includes that whole literal of what we would call the Middle East. <clears throat> That's how the Babylonians referred to it. All right, and he captures it in the month Kislev. Now, Kislev is the month of November or December, November hyphen December. So it's late in the year 605. And in fact, archaeologists believe that this destruction occurred very early in the year 604. Would this account then for Jehoiakim establishing a fast in Jerusalem? <clears throat> Please, Lord, keep him away from Jerusalem again, perhaps. It is a suggestion. It has some plausibility to it, though we can't confirm it, because notice Nebuchadnezzar does not say that he campaigned in Jerusalem or Judah. He simply was in the region. We have no reason to doubt the credibility of it because of the remnants of the archaeological burn layers at Ascalon that sort of has some excavation going on there, but we can't directly line this up with the fast that Jehoiakim proclaimed. It's possible that this is one of the reasons that he did it. Now, verse 10 mentions Gemariah, who is the son of whom? Shaphan. Now, uh, Gemariah has some brothers. This is, in fact, the first time we've had Gemariah mentioned by name, but he has some brothers. Who are his brothers? The other sons of Shaphan. There's Ahikam, A-H-I-K-A-M, whom we met in chapter 26 of Jeremiah. What does Ahikam do in chapter 26? He protects Jeremiah from death. When Jehoiakim kills the prophet Uriah, Ahikam protects Jeremiah. So the sons of Shaphan are friends and loyal to Jeremiah, even as Gemariah is here. Ahikam, in chapter 26, protects him from death. And then the other son of Shaphan is Elasah, E-L-A-S-A-H, whom we met in chapter 29. He carries, or he's part of the embassy that carries Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon. Once again, uh, a son of Shaphan who is lending his assistance to Jeremiah and to his ministry and career. 
Now, also in this 36th chapter, if you notice the 11th verse, we have Gemariah's son, Micaiah. So the grandson of Shaphan, the son of Gemariah, is also involved in the career of Jeremiah. But in verse 12, amongst the names that are listed there, we have a fellow named Elnathan, the son of Akbor. We've had Elnathan before. Once again in chapter 26. He is the one who arrests Uriah when Uriah flees and runs down to Egypt. Jehoiakim himself sends Elnathan down to Egypt to seize him and to extradite him and to bring him back to Jerusalem when Jehoiakim kills him with his own sword. Elnathan here is going to be involved in a protest in verse 25 against the burning of Jeremiah's scroll. Curious note that this man whom Jehoiakim sends to extradite the prophet of the Lord Uriah, whom or which prophet is slain in front of Jehoiakim, if not slain in front of Elnathan, Elnathan pleads with Jehoiakim not to burn the scroll here in 3625. Has he had a change of heart? Has he realized that his previous dastardly deed took away the life of a prophet of the Lord and he doesn't want the word of a prophet of the Lord destroyed? We don't know. Raises some intriguing questions about his presence in the narrative. Verse 19, having read the scroll to the officials, this had not come to the king's ears yet, okay? The first scroll is read to these officials, uh, most of whom are named there in verse 12. These officials say to Jeremiah, go hide. Why? Why do they tell Jeremiah to hide? Going to be killed? By whom? Jehoiakim. No, by whom? Uriah. Yes, in other words, they remember what had happened to Uriah. So, are they saying, go hide, so the same thing doesn't happen to you? Possibly. Okay? Possibly they're alarmed. They're not only alarmed by what they hear, but they're alarmed by the fact that they remember what Jehoiakim did to Uriah. Verse 26, the Lord hides Jeremiah. So the Lord now protects his prophet. It's not a son of Shaphan per se. It's the Lord God who intervenes. Jehoiakim had destroyed the scroll And God hides Jeremiah, lest the author of the words on the scroll be destroyed as well. He had succeeded, that is, Jehoiakim had succeeded with Uriah and silenced the word of God at Uriah's mouth. Here, he's going to try the same thing with Jeremiah, so the Lord hides him. 
Ahikam protected him in chapter 26. The Lord is going to protect him directly and immediately here in chapter 36. Now, with respect to verse 30, we need to go back to chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. And so, if you'll turn back to 22, 18 and 19... And Kay, when you find that, would you read it for us? Jeremiah 22, 18, 19. Keep your finger in chapter 36, verse 30. 18 and 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord in regard to Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. They will not lament for him. Alas, my brother, or alas, sister, they will not lament for him. Alas, for the master, or alas, for his splendor. He will be burned with a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Right, now keep that in mind as you notice verse 30 of chapter 36. He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David. His dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. This statement and this appearance of Jehoiakim is the valedictory of the king. His last narrative cameo in the book, the final act, the final act of his political theater. Contemptuous, arrogant, insouciant disdain for the word of God. Thus, the Lord God disdains Jehoiakim, visiting the divine contempt upon him in the last act of eschatological theater. Jehoiakim's final words on record here are visited upon his own arrogant head. From out of his own mouth, verse 29, he predicts the end of Jerusalem So that verse 30 becomes a prophecy, a prophecy of his death, his dethronement, his exposure as a corpse, his being denied a son or a descendant to sit upon the throne of David. Irony. Notice the irony here. The valedictory of Jehoiakim is a very prophecy out of his own mouth, of his own eschatological end which folds into itself the end of the house of David according to the flesh on the throne of Judah and the end of the city of Jerusalem. The narrative then of Jeremiah's scroll becomes a prophetic mirror of the life of reprobate Jehoiakim. Even as the word of the Lord condemns him out of his own mouth as he attempts to destroy the word of the Lord in fire. Fire which shall flame up to destroy the palace in which he sits. Fire which will incinerate the temple of Solomon and all the dwellings in Jerusalem upon which he gazes. Fire which will leave Jeremiah unscathed. Fire which will leave the word of God alive, on record, preserved for the ages while the name of Jehoiakim 
The name of Jehoiakim becomes a byword, a byword for treachery, hypocrisy, deceit, contemptuous hatred for the word of God. Jehoiakim, who receives the burial of a donkey, his corpse food for the carrion eaters, hurled to the vultures and jackals, prowling, circling in the heat of the day and the frost of the night. The last word of Jehoiakim is the prophecy of his own ignominious and horrific death. You tamper with the word of God at your eternal peril. Do not, do not put God to the test. All right, now in verse 32, we redo what was lost. The word of the Lord endures forever. It is no more difficult for God to inspire an instant replay of this record that has been destroyed than it is for him to conceive his son in the womb of a virgin. This is a supernatural God, and supernatural divine inspiration can come twice as well as once. In this case, it does. Only notice what is added here. Not only does Jeremiah re-dictate or re-speak what had been burned, but new revelation is added to it. What is that new revelation? Ah, mysteries. Question for heaven. You can ask him. We're not told, and none of the rest of the book will line it out. However, it is interesting to note that when God does the second version of Jeremiah's inspired 23 years worth of prophetic declaration, he supplements it by additional revelation. So that by the time we're done with the second scroll, do we have the whole book of Jeremiah? Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? That's an interesting thought. Well, let's take a look at Baruch. who is the loyal scribe of God's loyal prophet. We met him first in chapter 2, where he recorded the deed of Jeremiah's purchase of the field in Anatoth. And why was he instructed to buy that field? Terry, do you remember? Why was Jeremiah told to buy that field? It was to symbolize the return of the captivity. Very good. In other words, this land will grow food, will be used again. And what was the date of that purchase? I know you don't have total recall on that, but remember, that is the last symbolic act of the career of Jeremiah. 
And it is the last symbolic act on the very edge of the end of Jerusalem. So it's 587. Because it's a testimony that beyond the destruction that is imminent will be restoration. I like the word Terry used there will be the restoration of the remnant to the land. All right. So that's the first time we meet Baruch, Baruch as a recorder of deeds. Second time is in this 36th chapter. We've already dated it to 605 and 604, fourth and fifth years of King Jehoiakim. And here he is a recorder again, and he is a recorder of all the words of Jeremiah. We will meet him in chapter 43. In chapter 43, which will be the year 586 or slightly after 586 with the destruction of Jerusalem, he will accompany Jeremiah as he is taken down into Egypt, forcibly deported to Egypt, and Baruch will go with him. The final time we meet him is in chapter 45. He has this very short chapter at the end of the prophetic work of Jeremiah, the prophetic work to Judah, and in fact, that chapter concludes the prophetic material of Jeremiah to Judah and Jerusalem, because in chapter 46, we begin Jeremiah's prophecies with respect to the nations. Judah and Jerusalem are not involved in that, except in chapter 52, which is actually a duplication of 2 Kings 24 and the final destruction of the nation of Judah. Chapter 45, in which Baruch appears again, is his valedictory. It is the valedictory appearance of Baruch in 605, though it is emblematic of the character and career of this faithful servant of the word of God. In that 45th chapter, God speaks to Baruch. He addresses him directly and personally. And in God's address to Baruch in that 45th chapter, he commends him and promises to preserve his life in the face of coming destruction. It's still 20 years off. 605 B.C. is the date of chapter 45. It is still 20 years off, but God promises to preserve his life when that coming destruction comes. In other words, a very personal engagement of God with the faithful scribe who recorded his word, the prophet Jeremiah. We are therefore forced to consider the relationship between the scribe and the spokesman and the prophet. We are forced to consider the relationship between the servant of the word and the recorder of the word. We are forced to look at the mirror parallels between the life of Jeremiah and the life of Baruch. And I've outlined in columns there on your handout these parallels which need to be taken into account. There is a great relationship of loyalty and fidelity between these two. There is a wonderful working relationship between these two centered around the Word of God. They are united with respect to the word of the Lord. 
And as one and the other possesses, embraces the word of the Lord, that makes the unity of the bond between them all the more strong and firm. Baruch is united to Jeremiah in the bond of the prophetic word of God. The protological prophet and his recording secretary. The protological Jeremiah and the one who preserves his word for the ages. Does it not force you to look at the relationship between the eschatological Jeremiah and his servants who record his word? Does it not cause you to realize that the unity of relationship between Jeremiah and his loyal amanuensis is represented and duplicated and replicated in the relationship between Jesus Christ and his faithful amanuenses. That that union of word and recording of word is as inseparable as the union between Jeremiah and Baruch and Jesus Christ and his faithful disciples. You must come to grips with what Matthew records about the crowds believing that Jesus of Nazareth was Jeremiah raised from the dead. You must come to grips with that. Else you do not understand the role of Jeremiah in the history of redemption and the role of Christ in the history of redemption as the eschatological Jeremiah. These patterns, these patterns are too obvious to miss. A loyal and faithful servant of a servant of the Lord and his word. Look at the parallels. Jeremiah proclaims the word of God. Baruch records the word of God that was proclaimed. Jeremiah is faithful to the Lord in his own personal career. Baruch is faithful to the Lord and faithful to Jeremiah. Over a period of 23 years, you could not dislodge this man from being, shall we say, a puppy dog at the feet of Jeremiah. Every word that Jeremiah spoke that God intended to be preserved, this man lovingly wrote down, cherishingly put ink to papyrus, preserved and passed on so that you can read it, I can read it, so that those in Jesus' lifetime could read it And they could say, this man from Nazareth, is he Jeremiah? And are there any Baruchs around? Ah, indeed there would be. 
Baruch's like Matthew and John and Paul and others who would write down the word of the Lord and record it for the ages. Is Jeremiah's life spared by Nebuchadnezzar? Baruch's life is spared alongside of Jeremiah's. Does Jeremiah remain through the destruction of Jerusalem? Baruch remains alongside of him, loyally identified and united to him in the same bond. Does Jeremiah support the governorship of Gedaliah? So does Baruch implicitly, if not explicitly. Does Jeremiah descend into Egypt? So does Baruch descend into Egypt with his beloved prophet, Jeremiah. Is Jeremiah accused of a lie by those who force him into a captivity in Egypt? So is Baruch accused of a lie, and they force him into captivity in Egypt along with the prophet. The prophet of the Lord and the prophet's loyal servant united in the word of God, bound in life in the land, Jews and the land in exile, Gentiles. Notice they both experienced the same transition. Jewish-Gentile interface. Suggesting that the greater transition is in front of them. That the gospel of the eschatological Jeremiah will go to the ends of the earth. Not the Jew only, but the Greek also. Not the Jew only, but the Gentile also. And Paul will preach that gospel in the Gentile cities of the Mediterranean world. All right. This chapter focuses upon this most intimate of special relationships between the prophet of the word and the recorder of the word of the prophet and the inseparable union that must exist between them for that word to be preserved handed down to us and to the rest of the people of God after Jeremiah's death after the restoration from captivity after the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, after the finishing of the epistles of the apostles, after the closing of the canon of the New Testament with the book of Revelation, after this book has been completely inscripturated and preserved, it is absolutely essential that we recognize the relationship between the ones who spoke it and the ones who recorded it. Because we are the beneficiaries of that wonderful reciprocal and mirror-like union. There's an identification here, an identification between the two parties which centers upon the Word of God. Surely you realize that is the identification you look for. You look for meaningful relationships of identification with what you believe in The word of God. It means that those most intimate understandings and experiences are focused upon what you mutually experience. 
namely the truth and the power and the redemptive grace of the word of the Lord, which lives forever. Every other word, every other word, you know it, every other word will pass away. It'll be forgotten. Five years after you're forgotten, it'll be forgotten. But the word of the Lord that you embraced will not be forgotten, and you will not be forgotten in embracing that word of the Lord. You are living in a day in which the centrality of the word of God to your life is going to be crucial to your existence, more crucial than it has ever been before in your lifetime. You don't realize it, but the crisis that is coming upon you and upon the Western world is about to break. This world is changing. If you don't sense it, you're not aware of your time. You're not feeling the angst. You're not feeling the discouragement. You're not feeling the tentativeness tentativeness of what is going on in your own 24-hour day. It's even different in the last three years. This world is changing rapidly, and the only thing that will not change in it is the Word of God, and you must be bound around that Word, or you're going to collapse, or you're going to apostatize, or you're going to disappear, or you're going to have nothing to hang your hope on. I cannot stress it enough. If the church of Jesus Christ of the 21st century will not be bound by the Word of God, God will take the word of God from that church. There was a famine of the hearing of the word in the days of the Old Testament prophets. It can happen again, and it can happen in America, and it can happen in the Western world. Don't you tempt God. And so, once again, underscoring the centrality of the word of God. Not the centrality of your fellowship. Wonderful as that may be, that's not the key to what makes you bound together. It is the word of God. And if you're embarrassed to talk about the word of God to your friends or those you're in fellowship, then something is wrong. Something is very, very wrong. If you're in a church where you can't talk about the word of God as the central bond between you, something's very, very wrong. That kind of facade is not going to be tolerated by God himself. Because you see, it's empty. There's nothing of substance to it. It has no root. It doesn't penetrate deeply. It won't hold you. It won't keep you together. Christ in his word And the word in Christ and you in Christ and in the word is the only thing that's going to keep you together. It's the only thing going to hold you together. It's the only thing going to hold any church together. And if it's not there, something's wrong. If they're embarrassed to talk to you about the word of God, if they're embarrassed to talk to you about your experience of reading the scripture, if they're embarrassed to talk to you about what the Lord Jesus Christ means to you today, this day, this morning, something's wrong. And that is not going to long endure or promote the church of Jesus Christ in this country. It's going to get that serious. So, go back to Jeremiah and Baruch. 
Go back to Jesus and his apostles. Go back to this intimate relationship of being bound in life to the servants of the word and to the word of those servants. And look at that wonderful Jeremiah Baruch dynamic. Surely, surely in the church of Jesus Christ, we ought to be seeing more of that. Richly, deeply, profoundly, we ought to be seeing more of it. The profound identity between the word of the Lord and the servants of the Lord's word. The story of the scroll is a mirror of the story of Judah and Jerusalem. The word of God is proclaimed in the nation and people reject it. The city and the nation are reduced to flames, but the word of God revives a remnant and adds new life of hope for the future. The fullness of the word of God is its incarnation in more than a scroll. It has come in the flesh. And though Judea and Jerusalem rejected again, even destroying the word of life by nailing him to a tree, that word of God rose again to speak anew his word to his servants. And in union with the living word of God, those servants have preserved, recorded, and embodied. Yes, they have embodied the life, death, and resurrection of the eschatological Jeremiah. His word, as his person, endures forever. That you can count on. All else may pass away. He and his word will not. You want something solid to hang your hat on, to hold your faith onto, to grasp? You hold fast to Jesus and to his word and to the record of it between the pages of this book, which include the pages of Jeremiah and his scroll recorded by Baruch. Shall we pray? Lord, we're weak, faltering, and inconsistent, sinful human beings. We are so superficial. We're ashamed of how shallow we are. And, O Lord, when your word confronts us, we sometimes don't know how to handle it. Or we treat it perfunctorily. We we read through it in our devotions and we think we've done our bit. There's more to it than that. You know it and you would teach it to us. You would teach it through this chapter of Jeremiah. You would teach it through the relationship between the servant and the word and the preservation of it and the bond of union that exists in that human dynamic. Bless our lives then. Bless them with a realization and a sense even of repentance that we have been so slow and hard of heart to believe. We've been rather presumptuous sitting upon our hands and presuming Forgive us, Lord. 
And let us, let us cling, cling to the eschatological Jeremiah and to his word, which is the word of life. In this season of the Christian year, when we remember that life given over to death, but death powerless to hold that life, so that indeed, though he was not Jeremiah raised from the dead, he was Jesus of Nazareth raised from the dead for our salvation and everlasting union, union with Christ, with the word of God, living and written. Dear Lord, forgive us for our foolishness, our slowness of heart, but help us by your grace, help us. Help us to love your word, the one who became flesh, and your word, which is the record of your revelation to us. Help us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Question? Go ahead, Scott. Um, You're free to go if you need to. Don't come back next Thursday. Week from Thursday. Two weeks. Go ahead, Scott. Appreciate your reflections on that connection between Ruth and Jeremiah. I've got a thought here, but I'm wondering, what do you you think there is a reason why there's this relationship between the prophet and the one who writes for him at this particular point in his redemption? Because we don't have Malachi having an amanuensis like this. is it that this is the suffering prophet and the eschatological sufferer will not be here after his suffering who needs writers for him? So this one who, who uh, is going to anticipate him in his suffering also has a writer. But what, what do you see? I think that's worth thinking about and pondering as you suggest it. Uh, I think the ultimate crisis here in terms of the Old Testament history of redemption, uh, namely the recording of the definitive uh, word of God's judgment against Judah and Jerusalem and its projection of the eschatological fruition which will result in that transition uh, between the Jewish and Gentile age going to be repeated in 70 AD as Jesus himself projects it. I think there's a relationship of identification there so that in many ways I could be pressed to suggest that perhaps New Testament revelation ceased before 70 AD or shortly after 70 AD because, in fact, the final crisis had occurred. That the relationship that produced it was finished. Now, I admit that there's Malachi, but you see, it's, it's not this, uh, this relationship between uh, speaker and recorder that is true in the New Testament, speaker and recorder. So your, your, your reflection there is that, uh, uh, I'm not sure I can... We, 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 have, we, have, we have two events of a critical nature which deal with the destiny of Judah and Jerusalem. And they are both <clears throat> projected by a Jeremiah figure. 
protological and eschatological. <clears throat> the use of the amanuensis here is, and this process of preserving it, is indicative of how that record is going to be recorded and it's going to replay itself when the eschatological Jeremiah pronounces his woes over Jerusalem. And that record is going to be recorded. Going to be recorded uh, short of 70 AD, but perhaps even slightly afterwards, as there may be some reflections back upon it in some of the epistles of the New Testament. Uh, But at any event, my, my point is it's climactic. It's climactic here, anticipatory of the final climax of the New Testament era. Paul has his amanuensis very close to that 70 A.D. date. That that is a off-the-top-of-my-head response to uh, your remarkable uh, question there. I mean, you're pressing me, and and so uh, that's the way my thinking is moving. This is here because it is proleptic as well as retrospective and existential. Something here is going to be replayed. Yeah, I want to keep thinking about that. Well, have a great two weeks and blessed Easter to you all.